coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group. This is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Welcome back to the DNS Podcast. My guest is registered dietitian Kelly Kinnear. Kelly has worked in the home infusion industry for the past eight years and is currently the Director of Clinical Nutrition for Option Care Health. She received her bachelor's degree in dietetics at Western Michigan University and then went on to complete her master's degree in dietetic internship at Rush University in Chicago. Prior to moving to home infusion, she served as nutrition support dietitian at Rush University Medical Center, caring for patients in the surgical ICU and solid organ transplant clinic. Kelly is a member of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, or ASPEN. She has been involved in the Chicago area chapter of ASPEN, holding the positions of program chair and president, and has also been very active in DNS, serving as an associate and guest editor for Support Line and a mentor in the DNS career mentoring program. She has also been active in research with over 15 publications in the area of nutrition support, including peer-reviewed manuscripts, review articles, book chapters, and abstracts. Our topic for today's discussion is the recent change to the CMS Durable Medical Equipment Parenteral and Enteral Local Coverage Determination, or LCD, which went into effect on November 12th of 2020. This is certainly a complex topic, and I am so very grateful to have the opportunity to talk with Kelly so she can break it down and help us all understand how this change will impact our patients. Kelly, thank you so much for being here today. And thank you so much for having me. So for starters, let's talk about you. Um, How did you first become interested in Medicare reimbursement? Yeah, so it's interesting how how your your career sort of takes a a bit of a different path. So I actually started my career in the hospital setting. And, you know, I loved every aspect of my job and caring for nutrition support patients. But, you know, I always wondered what happened to my patients when they went home? Who was involved in their care? Um, You know, were they being weaned off appropriately? Um, You know, I worried about my patients not having the right tools or support at home to be successful. And, you know, as an inpatient dietitian, I really wasn't very familiar with Medicare coverage at that time. Um, You know, I don't think we're taught a lot about reimbursement in general as dietitians. Um, and I think we can all agree with that. You know, it's a learn. It's certainly a learned art. Um, so, as an inpatient dietitian, I knew that you know over time, you know, in working with you know my unit case manager to get patients you know out of the hospital and at home on nutrition support, um, I started to pick up on some things like you know I need to indicate length of need in my note, um, you know, which was never really part of my assessment, uh, but. I had to thoughtfully add it later as an addendum, you know, just so we could get that patient covered and home. Um, So I learned everything that I know now about Medicare coverage criteria when I moved into the home infusion industry. And that's because in this role, you're a little bit more deeply involved 
in helping these patients get qualified and onboarded. Um, you know, and as you guys all know, right, parenteral and enteral nutrition are life-saving therapies. And when we use them appropriately, patients can be very successful on them. Um, but it's the job of the whole healthcare team to make sure that we not only put the patient on the right therapy based on their condition, but that we document along the way in order to optimize coverage. So in my time in home infusion, I've seen you know, many patients not receive coverage who needed it due to not meeting insurance coverage criteria. And so um, you know, that's, that's a hard pill to swallow for a patient. These therapies can be very costly. You know, a patient who, who doesn't meet coverage criteria may have to pay out of pocket. Um, and you know, that's a hard thing to tell a patient that their insurance won't cover what could ultimately you know, save their life. Yeah, so that it's a really it's a really interesting viewpoint when you look at it from the long term nutrition support patient. And I, I can speak for myself when I was in an inpatient setting position. Um, we didn't worry about the payment structure, right? Because it's so very different in acute care. If our patient needed tube feeding or IV nutrition we ordered it and you know, we worked with the physician and they got it. Um, but certainly, as you said, it is very different when we're talking about a long-term patient and having that therapy paid for once they go home. Um, so for those of us who, you know, as you said, have really not been directly involved in the financial reimbursement side, um, help us understand what is this change in the LCD coverage what does that really mean? And why does everyone in the field just seem so excited about it right now? Right. Well, you know, CMS or Medicare, you know, policies were created back in the 1980s and they have not been updated since. But our nutrition support practice certainly has evolved over the years, right? We've got all kinds of guidelines and position papers and lots of things at the academy and that Aspen put out um, that we, you know, follow to a T, evidence-based research. Um, and so that was a struggle for us for so many years with these, you know, sort of outdated policies. And I guess I want to kind of back up too. I mean, the two policies that we'll kind of talk about today are the NCD, which is the national coverage determination, and the LCD, which is the local coverage determination. And the NCD was actually last updated in 1984, uh, which is quite uh, some time ago. Um, now the LCD you know, came out a bit after that, and that's the one that we think about today when we're trying to qualify a patient for parenteral or enteral nutrition because the LCD provided much more stringent uh, criteria based on you know, specific scenarios in patients. It included um, you know, for parenteral nutrition, all of those situations we think about, there are seven of them, um, A through G and H, and we you know, try to fit a patient into that box to qualify them. Um, it includes things though like serum albumin as a marker for malnutrition and you know, fecal fat testing for um, diagnosis of malabsorption. And these things aren't really widely used in nutrition support practice anymore. Um, and then those stringent criteria didn't really allow for patients that, you know, didn't quite fit into one of those categories. Um, you know, maybe they mostly met criteria, but there was one thing missing, right? And so that, that you know, made it really hard for, for us clinicians to kind of, you know, get these patients um, covered. So, um, so really, that's sort of the backstory. Now, 
what these changes are and what's happening, as you mentioned, Christina, is that this LCD policy has been retired, uh, effective on November 12th. And what's happening now is we're defaulting to this back to this NCD, which again was created in 1984. Um, so it's it's a Everyone's excited, yes, right, because the LCD was where, you know, we had a really hard time getting patients qualified because of that very stringent and outdated criteria. The NCD is much more general, and we can kind of go into, you know, what that means, how, how are we interpreting that a little bit later in our conversation, but I mean, as far as why is everyone so excited, well, you know, Aspen and NHI have been advocating for years to get CMS to update their policies, specifically the LCD. Um, and so, you know, some members of Aspen and NHIA kind of went to their Medicare or medical contractors back in July. And, and you know, they've done this many times in the past. They've been advocating that the most recent one was in July. And, you know, they really outlined some specific changes that, you know, really they gave suggestions to the medical contractors of what they could update in this policy. Um, now, little did they know the policy would just be completely retired, right? But regardless, um, everyone's very excited about this change because this is what we've been pushing for for many, many years. So if this work has been going on behind the scenes for years and they were just there in July continuing that conversation, why do you think, why do you think the retirement happened now? You know, is there any significance to the specific timing of the change? You know, that, that you know, I guess I, I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, you know, it, it's, it is sort of interesting how quickly and, and you know, how, you know, from, from what we're hearing in the, in the home infusion industry, um, you know, when NHIA and Aspen presented to them, you know, certainly this isn't even what they thought would happen or expect. Um, but it's overall still really looked at as a positive change. Um, I think that from, again, what we're hearing is that the way they presented and the evidence they presented, which was much more well thought out, um, we have much better data now to support, you know, current nutrition support practice. And so it sounds like um, they just did a really fantastic job of presenting to these Medicare leaders and, um, you know, it sounds like they left the, the meeting with, um, you know, a really good feeling about it. Well, that's awesome. And I think we should all be grateful for those who are advocating and lobbying for these changes because they certainly do have a positive impact on us as dietitians and then as the, the patients that we're caring for. Mm-hmm. Help us understand how does this, how does this change really impact patient access to nutrition support? Well, you know, I would say because the LCD is being discontinued and we're now defaulting to that national coverage determination, which is a little, you know, certainly less strict, um, still left up to interpretation, but less strict, uh, it should improve Medicare beneficiary access to nutrition support um, overall. So essentially, we should see more patients meet coverage criteria than we used to. Now, what percent that is, is yet to be determined. Um, So there's some older data that, and maybe not even so much older, right? Because criteria hasn't changed, but the data that we have suggests that only 10 to 16% of, 
you know, referrals that go to home infusion meet the, the previous criteria, which is, you know, that outlined by that LCD. So I mean, think about that 10 to 16% meet criteria. The rest of them don't meet criteria. They're not covered. You know, they find other ways to, um, to, you know, get nutrition or, you know, find another avenue to receive it or, you know, potentially stay in the hospital, go to a nursing home, um, you know, whatever that may be. So, I mean, that, you know, we certainly should see more, but again, we don't know how many more patients will meet criteria with, um, you know, with these changes. And, you know, the other thing too is, you know, when we look at um, patients that were, you know, we try to qualify um, in the home infusion world, you know, thinking back to the LCD policy with all of those, you know, seven situations that you're trying to fit a patient into, you know, situations A through F were pretty, um, I don't want to say cut and dry, but sort of, right? I mean, you, it was a pretty specific medical condition. And then there was this G&H category, which is where you could kind of fit the patient if they didn't meet uh, criteria within another situation. And so, you know, sometimes we could find a way to still get the patient qualified under that situation G&H. Um, so going forward, you know, the thought is that, you know, using the NCD as, you know, our guideline may ease the qualification process. Um, we may not see a huge rise in the number or the percent of patients who meet coverage criteria, but Again, I think um, even streamlining that process will be, um, you know, lifting a huge burden for clinicians and case managers and getting these patients home. Um, but I, I do think we'll expect to see an increase in that percentage for sure. So as you are looking at, you know, lifting a lot of these restrictions that have previously been in place, what will the qualifying criteria be going forward? Yeah, so um, what, what we're seeing within the NCD is that it's really um, built upon, and when we read these policies, um, you know, this is sort of what we're pulling out of it. It's based on reasonable and necessary criteria. So essentially what this means is it's leaving the patient's clinical course of care up to the judgment of the physician. So no longer is Medicare saying what should have been done or you know, how that patient should have been treated based on their diagnosis. It's leaving that up to the judgment of the physician. So based on that individual patient's disease or you know, medical condition, the physician can de decide what is reasonable and necessary for that particular patient specific to objective testing, you know, the course of their treatment for their medical condition, um, you know, the list goes on. And, and ultimately, the type of nutrition support they receive, though, most importantly, right? So, um, so that's important to know that reasonable and necessary criteria is overarching, um, sort of putting it back into the, the, the uh, medical team's hands, which really is where the decision should lie. Um, so we know we still need a qualifying condition. Um, that is, is an absolute must for these patients. And this is actually due to the way that parenteral and enteral nutrition are covered under Medicare Part B. So, um, and again, th these were things that I didn't know as an inpatient dietitian before I came into the home infusion world. But the Part B of Medicare is that 
prosthetic device benefit. So it's kind of funny that nutrition is considered a prosthetic device. Um, but I guess if you think about it, it really means that the GI tract is the you know, inoperable organ or the non-functioning limb um, and the tube, you know, feeding tube or, uh, you know, catheter um, is essentially the prosthesis or prosthetic device for this patient. So we always have to keep that in mind when we're attempting to qualify them because it has to be this permanent condition. Um, and, and so, you know, they, they have to have a underlying qualifying condition. So that has not gone away and that we know we still need going forward. So in line with this qualifying condition, we still also need supporting documentation related to that diagnosis. So I guess we can, you know, think of your patient with dysphagia. Well, likely that was diagnosed using a swallow study or right, some other um, objective testing. Uh, a patient with a bowel obstruction who needs PN, um, that was likely diagnosed due to some you know, so, so, some sort of testing that was done while that patient was, you know, you know, while they were working up that diagnosis. So anything that can help support that qualifying clinical condition, you know, we still need to have to, you know, make that patient's case. Um, but it doesn't need to be to the extent of what that LCD was out, outlining or what this retired policy outlined. So, you know, again, you'll remember they, they called out things like a uh, serum albumin less than 3.4, uh, a 10% weight loss in three months, and patients had to exactly meet these criteria, um, these, these fecal fat tests for malabsorption, um, you know, all of those little bits of information um, we don't always do today, or a patient maybe lost a significant amount of weight, but it wasn't to that, you know, standard that Medicare outlined. So, we have to remember that really what we need to support that clinical condition is, um, you know, something to back that up. But then beyond that, we just need really what was done is the, that natural clinical course of care. So back to that reasonable and necessary criteria left up to the judgment of the physician or really the medical team um, that they, you know, chose an appropriate route of nutrition for that patient based on their condition. So situations, the, the situations that were outlined in the LCD, sometimes we, we kind of like to still use those um, because those are still good qualifying conditions, but certainly, um, you know, patients don't have to fit in those exact boxes anymore, which is, you know, really great for us clinicians trying to qualify patients because um, it does lift some of those restrictions that we used to have. You know, we're no longer putting patients through unnecessary and expensive testing just to prove they need nutrition support. Um, you know, we're just taking in what was part of that natural clinical course of care. So beyond the, the qualifying clinical condition and supporting documentation, um, the, really the last, you know, main piece of information that we know we can, will continue to need is that long-term impairment or that, you know, what we would consider um, length of need, uh, which Medicare defines as needing the therapy for greater than 90 days. Um, and again, that's due to that, um, you know, the fact that it's covered under Part B, um, you know, indicating long-term impairment of these patients. So beyond this, uh, we, you know, there are a few other things that we know we'll still need, like 
you know, an enteral patient, we've got to justify why they need a pump at home, you know, why they can't be gravity fed or, or bolus fed. Um, if they're going home on a specialty formula, we should probably still have some supporting documentation to, you know, get that covered. Um, there's other things like, uh, you know, the NCD does talk about the calorie range of which, you know, a patient is being fed. So, you know, um, I think it outlines that 20 to 35 calories per kilo and anything above or below should be justified. And, you know, that one's a hard one for me because I've certainly seen some really, you know, larger patients or even patients who need, um, you know, need that extra nutrition for weight gain that are fed a little bit outside of this range. And so, um, you know, as long as we're providing justification of why, we can still usually get that covered. It's just, these are the things that we have to make sure that we're documenting um, when we're charting on a patient. And then the last piece that we know is this, um, this the, the parenteral nutrition lipids, if we're dosing over 50 grams a day, uh, will you know likely still need to justify that as well. And again, that's just one of those things that's hard because uh, you know some patients truly do need that amount of lipid based on their size. And so um, you know it's it's one of those things where we still have a little bit of ways to go, I think. But these changes overall um, have definitely simplified the process. And all of these changes that you have referenced, which thank you for the overview, that was very very helpful. Um, do these changes solely impact the long-term EN and PN patients, or should we also expect to see changes in the acute care setting? Um, you know, that's a good question. You know, I don't, we won't see changes in coverage in the acute care setting, um, you know, just because, you know, as you mentioned, even Christina, it's uh, the way that the admission is billed, um, you know, what we're talking about in, in these policies is related to coverage of home parenteral and enteral nutrition. So, you know, will we see changes related to, to coverage on the inpatient side? You know, certainly, well, probably not, right? But we, we may see improved access for patients to be able to go home on PN or EN, which I guess in the acute care setting, um, you know, the thing that I see as a, a positive benefit is we might see a reduction in hospital length of stay as a result. Um, if we can get these patients covered and um, onboarded faster to home infusion, you know, we may be able to get them out of the hospital faster. Um, because, you know, prior to November 12th, if the patient didn't qualify, they, you know, either had to stay in the hospital or um, receive therapy in, in like more of a extended care facility type setting. So, you know, that's certainly one thing, um, you know, I, I would say, you know, reasons behind starting a patient on enteral or parenteral probably won't change in the acute care setting. I think, you know, with, you know, again, with, you know, these great uh, new guidelines that keep coming out, I think we're, we're seeing a lot more appropriate use to begin with. Um, now, that's not to say that we shouldn't do our due diligence and make sure before we put a tube in a patient that, you know, if we know they're going to have to go home on it, we should probably make sure that we can get this covered first. Um, so that's just one kind of caveat to that. And then um, we might also see other reduction in hospital cost. Um, I mean, I'm just, I'm always, a, I'm always a huge proponent of cost reduction. If you think about it with these changes too, we, 
may have elimination of this unnecessary objective testing, you know, putting a patient through a failed tube trial, you know, putting them through fecal fat testing or, you know, other things just to provide that justification that that LCD policy outlined. So, um, I mean, that's a huge win for the healthcare world. Well, I think any changes that go into place that potentially reduce a patient's length of stay and really eases that stress and that workload during times of transition of care is a win for everyone. So that's exciting to hear. Um, So I think a lot of what we've been talking about would be categorized as that quote unquote interpretation of guidelines. So when will we know for sure how this change in regulation will actually impact the patients or the providers? Yeah, I mean, you're right. This is all an interpretation of the policy. Um, And I mean, how many times have you read a policy or a guideline where you're like, "What what does that exactly mean, right? So we're all, you know, working to interpret this policy um, in, you know, the way that it's written. And, um, you know, ultimately the Medicare contractors in each jurisdiction might have a different interpretation than us. We don't, we don't really know what that future looks like. We're only going to know more of what these, you know, Medicare contractors are looking for once we evaluate claims processing data, unfortunately. So, you know, it's, it's going to be onboarding patients using this, you know, new kind of criteria Um, you know, billing and seeing sort of what denials we come back uh, or what audits we start to see. So home infusion companies are likely going to be tracking these efforts very closely in terms of what's being denied um, and what situations are being audited. And then that's how we're going to learn from this. Do you expect that there will be learning opportunities with um, somebody who has a commercial insurance payer and not necessarily covered by Medicare? Well, and, and that's, the, that's the other edge to this sword, right? So there's a lot of uh, commercial payers that follow Medicare guidelines. And so, you know, I think there's probably a lot of us out there who, um, you know, want to make sure that these other insurance providers have these updates, right? So we want to make sure that they're in line with these new Medicare guidelines um, so that that takes a, a lot of behind the scenes efforts with, um, you know, getting the, you know, those particular commercial payers to, you know, update their you know, contracts with home infusion providers, uh, et cetera. So um, you're right. I mean, that's certainly going to be an in- interesting spin to all of this as we move forward. I think there's definitely a, as exciting as this has been thus far, I think the real excitement lies in the future as we see how everything unfolds. So my last question is, what do you think is the most important thing that a dietitian needs to know about this new change in reimbursement? Yeah, well, I think the first thing I wanna call out is we've talked a bit about this judgment of the physician with the reasonable and necessary criteria. And I certainly don't want dietitians to be discouraged thinking that they aren't part of this as well. Um, you know, we know that appropriate use of P- both PN and EN requires the expertise of this intra-professional team. So it's that collaboration among the physician and the nutrition support team that best determines this appropriate clinical course of care. So the RD should continue to be very involved in the medical decision-making of these patients when it comes to nutrition support. Um, you know, 
of course, ensure that, you know, we're choosing the right therapy, that if it's a patient who can get enteral, we still need to use enteral. Um, you know, they need to continue to document really well in their notes, you know, why the therapy is indicated, because that always helps that patient in the long run. Um, but again, that, that documentation and that decision on the appropriate type of nutrition support will help with coverage if they, if they need it at discharge. So I, I want to make sure the dietitians know they are certainly a part of this. Um, the other thing I, I guess I would say what they need to know is, and I, I guess um, beyond this, it's, it's really just that these changes will improve access and coverage for Medicare beneficiaries. Um, so this, again, is a really positive thing for the nutrition world. Um, I think, you know, we need to be recognizing that these changes may allow patients to discharge faster from the hospital. Um, but, but I think most of all, it, you know, to leave sort of a last note, I would say it's really still imperative to, you know, be sure that we're documenting in the medical record the reasoning behind the decisions that we're making related to these patients. So think back to, you know, I guess what I talked about with what do we still need, you know? Um, and so if, if a dietitian's recommending a specialty enteral formula, we've got to make sure we're kind of giving that indication and, and the why within our nutrition assessment um, and the other nutrition assessment components. So, you know, with the fact that the LCD has been retired and, and that serum albumin level piece is out of it, we have to make sure that those other nutrition assessment components are there, um, you know, in, in how we, you know, detected or diagnosed malnutrition in these patients. That's a lot of great information. Um, so thank you so much for spending time today to review all of this with us. And thank you so much for everything that you're doing to advocate for our long-term nutrition support patients. Listeners, to learn more about nutrition support and Medicare reimbursement, please visit our website at dnsdpg.org. Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening.